When I was asked if I would introduce Cedric, our speaker for today, I almost leapt at the opportunity because this is perhaps the last opportunity, Cedric, I'll have to pay public tribute to you. And I could talk to you about his degrees. I could talk about his distinguished academic record, his publications. I could speak to you about his experience and his expertise and his dedication and commitment in his work. But today I just want to spend a couple of moments sharing with you the delight that I have in my friend Cedric and to just talk to you for a few moments about him as a person. Five years ago I came to Avondale and I have the office next door to Cedric. I never hear roaring or anger or tirades coming out of that room. Instead, I hear a person who constantly empowers his students. He encourages his students. He is patient and works with them, those that some of the rest of us would gnash our teeth over and may not be so patient about, but he constantly encourages them. And because of this, he achieves excellent results with his students. But he doesn't just stop there. He also encourages and supports his colleagues in a wonderful way. And for me, as a novice tertiary lecturer, I found this wonderful, empowering person a strength to encourage me and encourage me to strive harder. And I found that really wonderful. The thing that I probably appreciate also about Cedric, I've never heard Cedric ever say anything nasty about anyone. Now, I look around the room and I look at myself, and I don't know about you, but there's not too many of us who could come into that category. And I have been heard to remark that if Cedric was asked to comment on the devil, he'd probably give him at least a mark for perseverance, but he wouldn't say anything nasty about him. And it's this ability to be gracious, compassionate, understanding, and overwhelmingly kind that I value so much in you, Cedric. Mind you, Cedric is a little bit odd and unusual. I mean, when he worked in Africa... Um, he took into his home and adopted another daughter. He has two lovely daughters, but he adopted another one by the name of Lucy Brown. The only tricky thing is that Lucy Brown was a chimpanzee. And I look at that and think, he has this wonderful sense of humour as well. And he is able to laugh at things, and he's able to be gracious and kind, even when sometimes treated quite poorly and maybe unfairly. He shows no animosity but just simply says, oh, well, and keeps working. And that's quite an achievement. I'm not sure that most of us are, would be similarly gracious. Cedric has a wonderful passion for teaching and for education. Sometimes people look at Cedric, if they haven't met him before, and they say, oh, I wonder what he's going to talk about. And then he stuns us with all the passion of a vibrant 30-year-old, although both, both of us are somewhat past that now, and he has this energy and enthusiasm for his teaching. So without any more ado, I would like to introduce our speaker for today, Dr. Cedric Grieve. Welcome, Cedric, and thank you so much for sharing with us. Thank you, Marion. Um, 
I do hope that the uh, Lord forgives you for stretching the truth. Um, the person you described, I'm sure, isn't the person that I know. And I think that if my wife were to stand up here, she would, she would balance the account. <laughs> and Owen, it, it's been a, a wonderful privilege for me to give this address today. Uh, I first met you in 1958 when you and Jan were running the Pathfinder program at Toronto Church. I followed you in Samoa. You were there before me. I went there in 74. And I joined you in 86 when you were Dean of the Faculty of Education and you had a, uh, a new doctorate in psychology. So in fact, I acknowledge you as the psychologist who is here today. And I'm but a teacher who is going to masquerade as a psychologist today. I'm going to talk about memory, and uh, I might as well wake this thing up here. Yes, it's coming on. I'm going to talk about memory, and I'm going to talk about what memory does for us, because memory gives us a sense of personal history, it gives us identity, it allows us to deal flexibly with ideas, but it does a lot more than that. It gives us wonderful skills that we take for granted. And I want to talk about some of these things today. For a moment, I want you just to contemplate what is happening right here and now. I'm standing up in front of you, and I've got some ideas in my head. I'm going to put this down for a moment. In here. And all I have to do is to focus and order the ideas that I want to declare to you. I don't have to worry about the way I encode those ideas into words and then encode words into sound that I broadcast to you. That happens. But that's also driven by memory. And so I've got two things going on there. One is autonomous and the other one I'm in control of. Now, for your part, you're sitting out there and you're listening. You're receiving sound. You're decoding sound and turning it back into words. And the only thing you're focusing on is to build up a set of ideas in your head that in some way mirror the ideas that I had originally. Now, that's remarkable. It's absolutely mind-blowing when you think about it in that way. Try and design a computer system that can do that. But there's even more to this. Think about the utterance for the moment. While I'm talking, my diaphragm is pushing gently up and creating a pressure that is causing a flow of air to go up through the trachea. Automatically, muscles in my voice box are adjusting the vocal cords, the tensions of them, changing the shape of my throat, moving my mouth around, my tongue, my teeth and my lips, so that I'm actually sculpting sound. Now, in order to do that, those muscles have got to work in the right sequential order. If you change the order, the message is unintelligible. You can't understand what I'm saying. But there's something else there too. If the timing is out by even 10 milliseconds, the message is distorted. So all of these processes are taking place right here and now, and they're all driven by memory. 
memory does all of these things for us. Now, memory, of course, is a product of the brain. And uh, come on, what are we doing here? Oh, we've... Yes, there we go. Let's define memory first. Here's the first definition. I'm going to define memory as a record of an experience, and that experience could involve an event, it could involve a bodily state or an activity, and the record is independent of the entities themselves. It's separate from them. What's more, that memory, that record, can be summoned at some later date and can provide information about the event or can reproduce the emotional state or can reproduce the activity. So memory does all of these things. But I'm going to define memory again a little later on. All right. Now, where are we up to? Yes, we're going to move on. The brain itself. The brain, of course, controls memory. And you have a look at that diagram up there and you suddenly see just how complex the brain is. There are many, many components to it. Anatomical regions, each of them have different functions, they do different things. And there are many hidden things, you can't see them, but they're inside. We're going to talk about some of those regions. But they combine together to create not a single homogeneous memory, although you experience it that way. What it does is create a multitude of memories, a, a multitude of memory systems. Inside your head, you have memories for words, memories for faces, and they're different, and they involve different uh, anatomical regions that combine together, that coordinate together to give you a memory function. All of those memory functions combine together and somebody has numbered them to be in excess of 400 to give you the seamless experience of consciousness. To you, it's all one experience. And yet, going on inside your head are all of these different locations, talking to each other constantly, exchanging information with each other, so that you have this wonderful experience of existence. Medical Let's have a look at this. Prove the brain is indeed where we think and feel. When a particular area of my brain is working hard, extra blood flows there through my arteries to provide energy for the active nerve cells. The scanner can detect these changes in blood flow, giving us a completely new window into the fascinating world of the mind. Using this technique, we can actually watch the brain at work. Here, I'm listening to music. Not one, but several areas light up. This part of the brain is where we process all sounds, and this is where we appreciate music. Amazingly, there are even separate bits for melody, for rhythm, and for pitch. What's actually happening deep inside the brain? It's a fascinating story, but it's complicated. Complicated indeed. The point about the mind is the fact that it has many, many different memory systems that combine together. 
I'm going to just give you one more example of one. Lincoln Holmes uh, had an accident in a car and it robbed him of one particular skill. While he was able to recognise a face, he could see a face. That's fine, no problem, but he couldn't identify the faces belonging to a particular person. Have a look. What's that? That's a key. Great. That's an apple. Okay. That's a police setting with a uh, knife, fork, and spoon and a plate. Who is it? Um, I don't know. I don't know. Okay. Uh, young woman, old woman? To be very honest, I'm having trouble answering that question. Um, well, let me give you some uh, biographical details. Um, she's a movie star from the 1950s, uh, very glamorous. She sang happy birthday to President Kennedy once. Madeline Monroe? Yeah. Okay. How about that person? Mm hmm. Don't know. Any sense of familiarity? No. No. What about the, uh, there's a child's face sort of looking over his shoulder. Any familiarity there? This is the nastiest one of all, isn't it? Yes. It this is. is me. Yes. He even tells the story of going to a conference on one occasion, walking out of the men's toilets to find a mirror facing him. He looked up and the person that he saw was vaguely familiar, so he stuck his hand out to shake hands. Memory does all of these things for us. It's, it's absolutely remarkable. But you know, it actually comes from the function of neurons. And neurons are able to take signals and pass signals on. And it's because they are able to do that that we have the abilities that we do. The dendrites at the top receive the signal from their previous neuron, pass it down through the soma, through the axon, to the terminals at the end. The signal is supported by the myelin sheath, which becomes increasingly important. Uh, and we'll talk about that. At the end, you've got the synapse. The neurons don't actually touch each other. There's a fluid-filled cleft between the two neurons. And as the signal comes down uh, the presynaptic neuron, it causes neurotransmitters to be released and to pass across the cleft and lock into receptor molecules on the other side. And that activates the next Neuron. Now what happens is that the synapse then acts as a switching agent in much the same way as transistors act as uh, switching agents inside a computer chip. And this means that the, 
synapse is able to, in part, shape the signal into which information can be coded. And so your, your brain deals with information coded into action potentials, electrical signals. And it was thought that it was only the synapse that did that. And then the uh, physiology people, the uh, human movement people said, hey, wait a minute, time is of fundamental importance. Think back to my description of producing the utterance. Just a change of 10 milliseconds can turn an utterance into something unintelligible. The sequence has to be in the right order and have the right time. And so they suddenly realised that, hey, wait a minute, the signal that we use inside the brain to code information is going to involve switching, yes, but it's also going to involve the timing of signals passing down different parallel pathways. And so going back here, it is in fact the myelin that is important to control the timing. And the nodes of Ranvier determine how fast the signal passes down the axon. And so it's both myelin and synapse that controls the shape that permits variation inside the signal, inside the brain, that allows information to be coded into it. Wow, this is getting pretty heavy, isn't it? But that's the complexity of the human brain. Let's keep going. Between each neuron is a gap called a synapse. When an electrical signal reaches the end of a neuron, it releases a particular chemical. This neurotransmitter then travels across the synapse and triggers a new electrical signal in the next cell. All brain activity boils down to this. So everything we do involves a frenzied web of chemical and electrical activity. If we're ever going to explain how we work, we'll need to keep track of all these microscopic interactions throughout the whole brain. It blows me away. It really does. Because I experience it on the inside. I know what it's like to be alive. So do you. All right. So I'm going to redefine memory now. I'm going to define memory as the brain's interpretation of information that is coded into electrical signals that pass through the nerve cells. The brain's interpretation of the electrical signals that pass through the nerve cells. And let's have a little look at a summary of where we've gone so far. The brain is composed of uh, multiple anatomical structures. These give rise to multiple memory systems. Okay? A single memory system is not the function of a distinct anatomical region, but a combination that work in concert. Okay, think of that uh, scan that showed the brain listening to music. And finally, each memory system is a functional unit. We're defining the memory systems now on function only. Right? Not on anatomy, but on function. It's what the memory system does. 
It's a functional unit resulting from the orchestrated operation of a number of anatomical locations acting in concert. All right, now, I'm going to go on to this one. But before I do, I'm coming back to language. I want to uh, emphasize the importance of language to cognitive development. And to do that, I'm going to go back to the story of Helen Keller. You remember Helen, for 15 months, was a normal little girl, a bright little girl. And at 15 months, she was using a number of words. One of them was water. And when she wanted a drink, she would ask mum for water. And at about age 15 months, she succumbed to scarlet fever that robbed her of her sight and her hearing. For the next four years, she was tolerated in the home as a loved pet would be. She was willful, she was destructive, they didn't know what to do with her. And I've got here two clips that I want to share with you. They come from the movie called The Miracle Worker. It's a 1956 black and white movie. I'm sure some of you have seen it. The first one shows the willful young Helen Keller. I think the captain will write to the perfect school soon. Katie, how many times have you let them break your heart? Any number of times. As long as there's the least chance for her to see or hear. Watch her. There is. Now I must finish you. I think with your permission, Captain, I would like to write to the Perkins School. I said no. Please. Well, write it. There's no problem. Only a little bit in there. They can't. We won't know that to be a fact, Captain, until after you write. They can't. I might as well try working again while this is out. It was at this point that the mother prevailed upon the father. They sought advice and Anne Sullivan was brought in as a tutor for young Helen. The next clip that I'm going to show you is that magic moment by the pump when Helen realised that the movement of fingers coded words.
The ability to be able to symbolise words with the movement of fingers gave Helen language. It made her literate. She learnt to read. She got an education. She went to Radcliffe College and at 24 graduated with a BA. This is what Helen said of that occasion by the pump. Let's go back. Somebody was drawing water and my teacher placed my hand under the spout. As the cool stream gushed over one hand, she spelled into the other the word W-A-T-E-R. I stood still. My whole attention focused upon the motion of her fingers. Suddenly, I felt a misty consciousness as of something forgotten. A thrill of returning thought, and somehow the mystery of language was revealed to me. I knew then that W-A-T-E-R meant the wonderful, cool something that was flowing over my hand. The living word awakened my soul, gave it light, joy, set it free. Everything had a name, and every name gave birth to a new thought, And as we returned to the house, every object which I touched seemed to quiver with life. I learnt a great many new words that day, words that were to make the world blossom to me. The point is, folk, language is a function of the brain. Language allows you to gain education, and it's language that allows you to share information, one person to another. Language is what makes you who you are. But it's not just that. Let's just look at the way language develops. Here is a brief overview of the first six years. Notice it begins in the early months. By four months, a tiny baby's brain is beginning to become sensitised to the language of the home. We've got research that can verify that. Even at four months, the child is tuning in to the first language. By eight months, the child is babbling with the intonation and rhythm of the first language. By 14 months, up to 10 words, being used meaningfully. By 18 months, the child is using telegraphic sentences. Milk spill can bring horror to a mother. At breakfast time, daddy go, putting a noun and a verb together, telegraphic sentences, 18 months of age. 24 months, we've got up to 300 words. 36 months, 1,500 words. By age six, a child has not yet fully mastered the riding of a bicycle and they have a vocabulary of 16,000 words. Now, you stop and think about the complexity of language. And think about when and how a child learns language. So obviously, the learning of language is going to shape the coding of memory. The two of them are going to work together in tandem. As memory develops, language develops. But as language develops, it's going to determine the way information is coded into memory. And this is going to be an important thing. So language is fundamental. 
to the way information is coded into a particular kind of memory, and I'll get to that in a moment. Let's keep going. Broadly speaking, we've got two kinds of memory representations, and we've got two important categories of memory function. So let's have a look at the first, two kinds of memory. Well, first of all, there is the immediate memory. For example, action potentials are racing around your brain right now, and they're making sense, I'm hoping anyway, of what I'm saying. And this is an immediate activity. Action potentials actually working in your brain at the moment. But there's another kind of memory there that's made up from dormant chains of neurons that have to be activated before they reverberate with a pattern of action potentials that represents something that went before. And so that's the other kind of memory. Long-term secondary memories that reside in dormant chains of neurons. But once they are activated, they sing with a pattern that was like the pattern that created them in the first place. Okay. Now, two different categories of memory. Way, way, way back a hundred years ago, a bloke called Freud talked about the conscious and the unconscious. And he was on the right track. Today we talk about conscious declarative memory, explicit memory. Now, this is a whole memory system that is devoted to allowing you to share information with other people. A whole memory system that permits you to be able to convey information to another person or receive information from them. A whole memory system just devoted to that. And we call it declarative memory. Yep. And you know, the guy who coined it wasn't even a psychologist, Owen. He was a computer nerd. And he was interested in artificial intelligence. And he suddenly realised that inside the brain you had this whole system of memory that was devoted to doing nothing else but allowing you to play with ideas and to share ideas. All right. The other is non-declarative, non-conscious memory, and it is probably even more important than the conscious awareness, the memory that supplies conscious awareness. Because that memory system non-conscious, non-declarative memory, allows you to do wonderful things. It allows you to automatically decode the sound I'm making and make sense of it. It allows you to only think about what it is you want to tell somebody and not worry about how you're going to code it into sound. It does that autonomously and automatically for you. But it's a memory system nevertheless. So, these are the two major divisions of memory that we have. Declarative memory and non-declarative memory. One gives you the wonderful flexibility to play with ideas in wonderful creative ways and the other empowers it. And the two of them work together to give you the abilities that you have. Memory is such a wonderful thing. All right, let's go on. Okay, Flexibility, the cognitive process, and the ability to run autonomous, automatic processes that allow you to do all sorts of things. By the way, it also gives you some funny, quirky behaviour too. 
Um, makes you an individual. All right, let's have a look. Conscious working memory is divided up into sensory buffer, into working memory and to long-term store. Sensory buffer. Let's have a quick look at sensory buffer. It involves all the sensory nerves that come in from the body. They go to... Uh, hope that's not mine. No. Um, they go to the uh, thalamus, and from the thalamus, there is feed-out feedback loops that go to all the sensory, sensory regions of the brain. And the nerves coming in and the feed-out feedback loops from the thalamus to the sen various sensory regions can retain information for about three or four seconds. But it contain, can contain a lot of information for about three or four seconds. But it's got to get rid of it. The action has got to die. It's got to allow to atrophy, because if it didn't, you wouldn't be able to get any more information in, you see? So you get information in and you hold it in sensory buffer for that brief moment of time so that you can either attend it or not attend it. You know, let me give you an, a, an example. You're busy reading. You're concentrating on what you're, you're actually reading. And somebody walks in behind you and they ask you a question. And you keep on reading for a moment and then all of a sudden it registered that a question was asked. And you say, ah, oh. And you replay the last three or four seconds in your head and then you answer the question. This is sensory buffer retaining information. But let me tell you, you have visual sensory buffer as well. And there are lots of very, very cute little experiments that show us the power of sensory buffer to retain information, a lot of it, for a very short period of time. But after three or four seconds, poof, it's gone. The activity is dead and replaced by new activity. All right, now we move on to working memory. Working memory is your central processing unit. This is where it all happens. This is where you have the sense of consciousness, sense of awareness. It's where you can direct attention. It's where you think. It has a strong sense of self. But that's working memory. I'll come back to working memory. Yes, I'm stay with working memory for the moment. Working memory directs attention. Obviously, when you are involved in some activity, uh, you can be totally immersed in a sea of sensory input. You have to actually select what it is you want to attend to. And so we actually select only a few things that are impacting us at any one moment. And we focus on those things and we ignore the rest. Let's just have a quick look at this. The difference between these two men seems obvious. Their faces are different, their hair is different, even their shirts are a different colour. And yet an experiment by psychologists Dan Simons and Chris Chabri at Harvard reveals that our brains actually process very little of what comes in through the eyes. In this experiment, a subject um, comes up to a counter and a first experimenter hands them a consent form. As soon as they finish signing the consent form, they hand it back to the first experimenter, who then takes the consent form, ducks down behind the counter to put it away, 
and a different experimenter then stands up and hands the subject a packet of information and sends them into a hallway where we ask them questions about it. This wonderful experiment uncovers an aspect of the brain's attention system known as change blindness. Change blindness is the idea that we often miss large changes to our visual world from one view to the next. We're often not able to see large changes that would appear to be perfectly obvious to somebody who knows they're going to happen. And incredibly, in 75% of cases, the subjects don't notice a thing. The lady who took me up here, she opened the door for me and told me to walk over to the desk. Uh, I think there was a sign that said experiment. Mm -hmm. And a man there gave me a form to sign. Mm -hmm. There was the guy standing under a big sign that said experiment. Mm -hmm. um, and to my left, there was like a pot with some mm -hmm. dirt in it and some plastic containers. Oh, I filled out a form. Okay. Right. How long would it be about before it... Uh, it's I asked him how long it would take. He said about 10, 15 minutes or so. I guess I have the time to do that. Did you notice anything unusual at all uh, after you signed the consent form? I just signed it, and I didn't even pay attention to anything that was written on it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, after, after you handed it back to him, um, mm -hmm. did you notice anything unusual happen at all? If you could just take this into the next no, room. No, I, uh, I probably wasn't even looking that direction. I probably okay. turned and looked towards the clear door. I saw some people there. Okay. Then I turned back and looked at him for a second. Okay. See, Joy, that's why I can't find my socks. <laughs> you see, the point is this, that so much impacts us all of the time that we have to choose what it is that we want to focus attention upon. Now, there's one more thing about focusing attention, and that is that you will not lock information into memory, into declarative memory, and this is different from non-declarative memory, but you will not lock information into declarative memory unless you give it steady attention. Eric Candle followed through a chain of, a cascade of molecular interactions that involve uh, genetic expression to create proteins that lock neurons together. And he says attention is critical because it keeps the neurons active while dopamine is inserted into the synapse that begins the process that commences to lock the two neurons together so that they will form a long-term memory chain. Attention is needed for creating information that you store in long-term declarative memory. But it's not the same for non-declarative memory. There's a story of uh, Cleparade, uh, a French uh, physician who had a uh, hundred years ago, comes from a long time ago, but he had a patient, she had an injury, uh, to her head that actually damaged uh, her left um, hippocampal region. And for her, life basically stopped at the time of the injury because she was unable to create any new declarative memory. Without the hippocampus functioning, she wasn't able to create any new declarative memory. And so when she came into his office, 
he would have to formally greet her as for the first time because she could not process the fact that she'd been into his office before. She couldn't remember that she'd been into his office before. And part of the deal was that he would shake her hand. He secreted a thumbtack into his hand on one occasion and pressed it into her hand so that it actually hurt. She recoiled, pulled her hand back. On the next visit, she wouldn't shake his hand. But she couldn't tell him why she wouldn't because she had no record of the fact that he had done this nasty little trick. But what she did say is, I'm afraid. I'm afraid. She had recorded a fear memory which is not a part of the declarative system. All right, let me keep going. So working memory, I'll come back to that for a moment. It does deal with autobiographical information. It monitors your emotional state and creates this overwhelming sense of self. It's like a movie that's being run in your brain and you are the star, the star of your own movie. All right, so let's keep going. Long-term store, I want to talk about this for a moment because when, we'll go back here, and hold it for a moment. When you create memory and put it into long-term store, it's locked in in a way that allows you to be able to talk about it. It's coded into store in a way that allows you to be able to talk about it. This, after all, is a memory system devoted to being able to share information. And so when a child forms a concept, and concepts are like atoms. Everything is made up of atoms chair is made up of atoms, my clothing is made up of atoms, and molecules and so on. Concepts are the atoms of conceptual, of conceptual structure. They are a core idea that is supported by a number of shared characteristics. So when a child forms a concept of birdie, the child has experience with a number of different birds and it pulls out of these things the characteristics that are shared by birds. This allows a child to be able to identify it. And so it looks at a photograph and a book sitting on your knee, points at a bird and says, birdie. Why? Because it's got a body shape that looks like the body shape of a bird. It's got a bill, it's got two legs. So these become the attributes of the concept and the concept is a core idea. And when you link a concept with an attribute, you're going to get a proposition. Birds have wings. Now, interestingly, that when you put propositions together, you can create a narrative, a story. And stories, they are sequential pieces of information that are tailor-made for being able to push down a communication system that has only one channel because your communication system is just such a system as that. So the very way information is coded into long-term memory is coded so you can talk about it. All right. And here is non-declarative memory. These are the things that go together to create all of those autonomous, automatic activities. Procedural skills and habits, priming. Priming is really interesting because it's the way the environment affects your behaviour. In any one day, only half of the behaviour that uh, you perform is actually deliberate. It's actually thought out. 
The other half happens. It's where you respond to the environment itself. And so priming is really important. And perceptual learning, emotions, conditioning. So, you know, all the behaviourists, Owen, of the first half of the, the, the 20th century, they were hung on messing around with conditioning and they really missed. The, they certainly did, yes. And the non-associative learning. All right. Now, I'm going to skip on for a moment. I just want to uh, talk about perception. When you perceive something, you build inside your head a model in action potentials of what it is that is out there. You do not deal with the outside world directly. You deal with the outside world in patterns that you create inside the neural networks of your brain. And so you actually construct what it is that you perceive. So let's have a look at this. Have a look and tell me, do you see two triangles? Which of the two triangles is the lighter? Which of the two, the top one or the bottom one? Who perceives the top one to be lighter than the bottom one? Okay, there's a number of hands going up, you see. And what is happening is that your perceptual processes are saying, oh, you're looking for triangles here. Okay, I am going to do something for you. I'm going to come in and alter the picture a little bit so that you will see triangles. Have a look at this one. Oh, we've got light on the screen, but you've got a black triangle. It's hard to see there, isn't it? But does the top triangle appear blacker than the back one? It's the same again. Have a look at this. Which of the cylinders is the largest, the one at the back or the one at the front? They're all the same, actually. But your brain is arranging it so you perceive it in a particular way. Think about perception as this, and just, just bear with me for a moment. Perception is a created entity in your brain and you use the rules of the way you perceive the world works in order to create it. All right, I can see that it's time for me to stop I'm going to skip right to the end at this point. No, I'm going to give you one more thing. One more thing. When you recall information, remember you've got multiple memory systems, not just one, you've got many. When you experience a really complex activity, you dismember the elements and lock them away in all the various memory systems that you have. So, the images go into the visual memory, sounds go into sound memory, and uh, words that were spoken uh, are recorded in the memory that's appropriate to that. You break it up. And when you recall the event, you pull all of these shards out of all of these elements of memory, and you reconstruct your impression of what it was you experienced. So, it actually is remembering. You pull the members 
out of the various memory systems and you put the members back together when you remember. You remember the experience. So it's a constructed entity. And again, in recall, you use the way you see the world to guide you in the reconstruction. Now this is really, really important if, for example, you start to read documents written in a culture that's very different from your own because the way they perceive the world may not be the way you perceive the world and the way they recount an experience might be very different if you were to recount that same experience. So, memory is fascinating, but one of the things about memory is it comes from a wonderful organ that sits inside our head. It is, in fact, the universe between our ears. The mind is the product of the brain. The mind is created by nerve cells talking to each other. There is no ghost in the machine. The division of declarative and non-declarative memory clearly describes the function of memory and the way the two systems work together to make us what we are. And consciousness results from the orchestration of all of those memory systems. They work seamlessly together to give us this sense of immediacy that is our present consciousness. Indeed, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. 